join Beer Edge for our first live event, Inspired by Beer, an evening with Tommy Arthur of the Lost Abbey and Port Brewing. During this Boston-area tasting, listen in as Tommy discusses beers that have inspired him in his brewing career, plus drink a few of his own creations. The fun happens on January 30th. Find tickets and more information at BeerEdge.com. I'm John Hall. This is Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. And this is Linus Hall of Yazoo Brewing in Nashville. For it to ring true with the consumer and for it to be something that you, you know, it, it takes so much effort to, to do what we're doing. That um, I mean, it's like a musician just singing, you know, somebody else's song. That you're not, you know, if you're not excited about it, the, the audience knows right away. Um, and I think, at least for us, if, we, if it's not a style or a beer that we're passionate about, even if it's just one or two people on our staff that really love that style, um, we just, you know, it just kind of falls by the wayside, I think, because nobody's championing it. Our full conversation is coming up next, but first, this episode is brought to you by Cigar City Brewing. Hunapu's might be their best-known barrel-aged beer, but the brewery doesn't stop there. In fact, it has a robust spirit-aged beer lineup that is worthy of your time and glass. Check out beers like Sun Over the Yardarm, a gin barrel-aged ale with lemon and lime zest, or vulgar expressions and double meanings, a brandy barrel-aged porter and brandy barrel-aged imperial stout blend with cherries and vanilla. Both are special releases from the brewery, and you can check these and more out at CigarCityBrewing.com. And Drink Beer, Think Beer is produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. A subscription to Beer Edge provides readers with smart and critical insights into the business and culture of beer. We talk directly to the players making an impact and report stories our audience has not heard before. The team at Beer Edge offers up a fresh and unfiltered look at the world of beer. Subscribe at BeerEdge.com. Welcome to the show. I am John Hall. And I have family that lives in Nashville, Tennessee, so I've been fortunate to head to that city several times a year for the better part of the last two decades. And from almost the start, I was hanging out at Yazoo Brewing, one of the city's earliest craft breweries. It was founded by Linus Hall, and since the brewery opened in 2003, it's been a force for positive beer change in the music city, where long-neck bottles of Bud reign supreme. And, of course, that beer is still king, but there's choice like never before, and Yazoo is a big part of that. The brewery has grown as the city has grown. It's a booming metropolitan area, and now Yazoo is in its third location. On the outskirts of town, it's a drive away from the raucous parties and the vacationers that populate downtown and Broadway, and this new location allows the taproom to once again serve locals, something Linus cares deeply about. They've added a canning line. They have additional plans to expand the property to bring the Embrace the Funk program headed by Brandon Jones to the campus. And on this episode, recorded at this new brewery on New Year's Eve, I talk with Linus about real estate, brewery growth, consumer expectations, and why you shouldn't just drink on a New York City subway platform. Here's our conversation. When you started Yazoo, it opened in 2003. Yeah. What was the beer scene like in the city and then I guess in, in, in a larger scope like the South at that point? Well, you know, Nashville actually had a, a really good homebrewing kind of craft beer scene. And that's really where I got my start. Um, I moved up to Nashville in 96 uh, from Mississippi and was working as a tire engineer, which was uh, really interesting from the engineering point of view, but pretty boring when you started talking to people at parties. And, um, <laughs> 
But I'd started homebrewing in college and, uh, and found, you know, I found a homebrew store here, got introduced to the, uh, the club. And it was a really cool club of about, you know, I'd say about 50 to 75 people, um, pretty thriving. And it was well supported by the, uh, the three or four brew pubs that were in existence in Nashville at the time. And it was all brew pubs at the time. It was. It was a Bosco's, which was down by Vanderbilt, um, them. Blackstone. Yeah. Uh, there was a, uh, the, the chain, the um, downtown chain. Oh, right on Broadway. And, um, and one called Market Street, which is an old, uh, actually is a brew pub and a package and brewery on, okay. on 2nd Avenue, yeah. So, and when you first started as a home brewer in college, I think I read someplace somewhere that it was because you wanted to drink more and you couldn't afford yeah. to buy the yeah. beer that you wanted to. Uh, I was in a fraternity and okay. um, a lot of the guys, when they uh, got to be about in their third or fourth year, uh, were living out in this old kind of farmhouse about 20 miles outside of uh, Charlottesville. I went to Virginia. And uh, so we had some pretty epic parties out there. And uh, one of my... Uh, uh, housemates was growing pot in the background and you know and so um but you know I was kind of not quite as much of a scofflaw I was like hey why don't you know why don't we start brewing some beer out here too you know to add to the parties and because we we're you know cheap and the, the closest store to get beer was about 10 miles away um and I was kind of fascinated by it you know you could make something on your stove that after a couple of weeks tasted like sort of like beer you know how how was how were the batches that you made back then the first one was good for about a week, but we'd use so much cane sugar that it tasted like, you know, bad apple cider after sure. about a week. What were you brewing back then? Or were you just following the Mr. Beer kits? It was real. Yeah. It was, you know, you'd find something. The first kit we got was really literally off the back of the Rolling Stone magazine. Those little classified ads in the back. And um, I mean, the closest store to buying the ingredients was, was Richmond, which was probably like an hour and a half away. <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, we just buy a kit, and me and my buddy that we'd gone in together uh, would make it, you know, brown ales and pale ales and that kind of stuff. What was everybody else drinking at those parties? Oh, wow. Um, usually the cheapest keg beer we could find, you know. We, we would go and raid other people's uh, parties and grab the empty kegs and, and take them and turn them in for the deposit to get our own keg of beer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. Well, you're no just admitting money. to like one felony after another well, here. You, know, you got one guy illegally growing marijuana. Kids. You got another one, you know, stealing stainless. I think the statute limitations is Pro- probably <laughs> probably yeah. The cops don't listen to this podcast anyway, so it's fine. But the cheapest stuff um, that everybody was drinking at the time is that what you found when you moved here to Nashville? That that was still sort of the the common denominator beer wise. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you know. I mean, I think people have the conception, probably true, that the South has really lagged behind with, with craft beer. Yeah. I think historically we didn't have a lot of breweries. You know, it was a lot of hard liquor. Um, we didn't have the German or the English kind of culture, you know, that the other parts of the country did in the time. And then Prohibition pretty much killed anything that was getting going. So, right. yeah, you know, when I started the brewery, uh, you know, 2003, I'd go in with a growler of pale ale or, or our Dos Peros or Mexican Amber and they literally would have four taps, and they were all lagers. You know, it'd be Bud Light, Coors Light, Miller Light, and Heineken if they were fancy. You know. Yeah. And um, it's okay. Um, so yeah, you know, a lot of times, you know, the, the, our pale ale would be the hoppiest thing they'd ever had in their in their lives, and uh, to convince them to put uh, beer on tap, a lot of times, you know, I'd have to add another tap to their to their tap wall, or add a you know faucet to their to a tower. So yeah, when we started, um, even though you know there was a pretty good craft uh, kind of homebrewing scene, um, most of the bars and restaurants didn't have any craft on tap, or if they did, it'd be 
you know, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale or Sam Adams. So you could get some of the larger national crafts. Oh, for you know, sure. Certainly in 03. I mean, yeah, they, they penetrated then, the market by you know, then. You had, uh, i trying to think, there was uh, New Knoxville Brewing was, was up in Knoxville at that time. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there was some you know, trickling in, but the big ones were still the big craft, uh, national craft, or even the imports. One of the things that I guess, what, what sort of helped change? Was it you guys coming into town as a production brewery, not so much a, a, a brew pub? But the food scene started to change as well. And I, 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 some of the research as well of the music scene started to change. With, even 2003 with the, with the internet of YouTube stars and other smaller acts that weren't just pushed by the larger record companies. You know, the music scene sort of became this local place as well or this, this local focus as well. Like you could come yeah. to Nashville and be a star but not necessarily in the traditional way that you used to. Right. I mean, is that, do you think that a lot of these things all happen sort of at the same time of the focus on local food and bringing back some Southern traditions with some modern spins? Yeah, I, I haven't thought about the music scene, but I think you're right. But, but definitely, you know, at the time that we opened, we were riding um, a lot of independent, uh, you know, restaurants opening up, you know, in, in Hillsborough Village or in East Nashville, um, Germantown. And, uh, you know, I, when I would go in and say, hey, I'm, I'm just like you, I'm a you know, struggling owner, you know, basically a, a small restaurant myself, but, a, but a focused on making beer instead of food. You know, like, how about giving us a shot? And that would really resonate. And, and the nice thing about Nashville at that time, I can't say it's the same now, but uh, <laughs> we'll get Nashville that, yeah. was like kind of a loose-knit collection of small towns. You know, yeah. you, had, you had Hillsborough Village, you had uh, Sylvan Park, you had... Um, you know, definitely like Franklin and Brentwood. Um, but once you kind of got going in one little area of town, everybody was talking to each other about what was being successful or what was happening in their restaurant. And a lot of times I'd go in, you know, down the road uh, the next day or two, and they'd be like, oh, my, my buddy said he just put your beer on tap and it's doing really well. Yeah, I'd love to try it. And so, um, yeah, I think it was, there was a lot more word of mouth and um, kind of connectedness in the city back then. It's definitely, it's definitely changed since then, though. So, how would you describe it now then? Because well, obviously you've grown. How, how many barrels did you do in that first full calendar year that you were? <laughs> uh, we did about fifty barrels the first, you know, three months we were open. Okay. And then the first in two thousand and four. Yeah, you opened say, a Blade 03, so yeah. Yeah, we probably hit around like uh, fifteen hundred barrels that year. And you're on pace now to do yeah, what so is we're closing at twenty nineteen? We'll probably be around we've kinda held steady the last four or five years really, so right around like twenty two, twenty three thousand barrels. Okay. So that's a pretty significant jump in a relatively short yeah, period. Yeah, yeah. It's uh it's pretty amazing in sixteen years to see what's happened. But so how would you describe the scene now then? Is it is it easier to sell your beer to places? Is it easier to get people to try it? Is it still? I don't know. The, the last time I was walking down Broadway, it seems like there's still those four lager handles, and there's still this very much sort of big marketing blitz from the much much larger brewing companies. You know, saying like you know, like Johnny Cash would drink Budweiser or you know something, and every tourist who comes through is like, well, I want to drink what Johnny Cash would have drank, and in reality, he would probably be drinking. You know, well, whiskey, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, downtown's it's kind of its own beast by now. It's, okay, um, and that's really happened the last four or five years. Four or five years. Um, 
Yeah, but we do really well downtown, actually. Um, a lot of places, and it's a, it's a weird thing as well, is that um, it's, it's changing a little bit with all the rooftop bars, but it's definitely a, a long neck, you know, a glass bottle kind of place. There's, there's not very much draft. Um, there's just tons of uh, people opening up bottle after bottle after bottle. Um, so we do pretty well down there. Uh, but selling craft beer in Nashville and kind of in the Mid-South, um, it's gotten a lot easier to get people to try it and to know what they're, they're tasting. They're a lot more knowledgeable. Um, but just like other parts of the country, it's um, this rotation nation. It's, it's, you know, even places that we used to have four taps on, it's down to three or two. And, and that's know, local competition. And that's as well. local. It's a lot of local for sure. Um, you know, you kind of get this sheepish look to the bar manager. Well, like, you know, I'm trying to give everybody a chance. You know, we gave y'all a shot back in the day. You know? Sure. And, and that's it's, tough logic to argue with. Right. But it's also when you're looking at your balance sheet these days, that's got to be tough. And so it's, uh, you know, we've always focused on, on Nashville and Middle Tennessee and, and we'll remain doing that. Um, you know, but it's definitely gotten a lot harder to uh, to keep your beer on constantly. Um, there's just so much opportunity. There's so many. Uh, there's just so much for them to choose from, and their customers are asking what's new, what's new, what's new, and so they feel like they have to keep rotating what, what's on tap. One of the things that I was struck with, and and we were talking about this before we started, but I mean, I've, I've known you pretty much since since you opened because I've been coming down to Nashville for. Well, gosh, I mean, you know, the better part of 20 years now because we have family here. And so, like, your second tap room that you opened up in the Gulch, like, I felt was, like, my favorite out-of-state-for-me home bar. Uh, you you, had, you used to have a great uh, bartender, Brian Soda. Yeah. Who, uh, you know, every time I'd walk in and be, like, three times a year, but he wouldn't see me for five months on it. It's like, hey, John, how you doing? It's like, yeah. I always felt like I, I, I was home. But from the, from the early days, I, I was always struck with, you followed a lot of the early craft pioneer playbooks where here's a pale ale that is not super hoppy. You didn't join the IBU race. Um, you know, here's a, you know, a, you know, a dark color beer that you can drink that you're probably going to enjoy. Like you, you, sure. you didn't try to go to the, to the extremes you were trying to, you, you and, and what brings it up is you said pe- people will try it once. They'll be curious about it. Was that a conscious decision to make these approachable beers? And was that done oh, for the yeah. marketplace or was that done for your own guiding path? Was it- well, you know, uh, part of it was, was definitely, you know, marketplace driven. Um, but, you know, I had kind of grown up loving, you know, Sierra Nevada, Nevada Pale Ale. Um, yeah. You know, I'd really admired, uh, you know, what Garrett at Brooklyn had done. And, and, and was, you interned there. Yeah, and that was the reason I, you know, I kind of sought that opportunity out and, and <laughs> kind of kept banging on the door till he let me in. And uh, it's because, you know, I thought the key to getting Southerners to embrace craft beer was to associate it with food because we've got this wonderful food culture from, you know, Creole to barbecue to everything else. And, but because, like we were talking about earlier, you know, we didn't have that brewing culture uh, in the early days. You know, people didn't associate beer with good food. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, that's the key is to um, make a beer that people want to have three or four pints of that go really well with our food, do a lot of beer dinners, do a lot of education on that front. And, you know, to do that, it has to be an approachable beer and it has to go well. It can't overpower the food. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, that w- those are the beers that I like to drink and that I was passionate about. Um, 
And I thought those are the beers that, you know, commercially would do the best in, in the South. And it worked out. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, nowadays, uh, and even, you know, earlier with IBU races and the alcohol content races and everything, yeah. I was kind of like, well, you know, what, what's the point? I mean, it's just to, you know, to brag that you have the biggest or the best. And, you know, people aren't going to have more than one or, four, one or two pints of that. And, um, and I want to, you know, I want to sell a lot of beer. I want to, <laughs> I don't want to just sell one pint and see it half, you know, half finished and, and they're moving on to the next thing. And, that's an interesting concept, though, of thinking about it that way, of leaving beer behind and sort of the way that that could wound a brewer or an owner of, like, you want something that people finish, you know, there's, chefs have that pride as well, or, you know, parents of young kids like, you know, me these days with, you know, the Clean Plate Club, uh, yeah, there, there, yeah. there's a certain satisfaction that comes with seeing something that was so delicious that, you know, you really have to finish it all the way. Yeah, and, and um and get, that was, you know, that's Garrett's philosophy. He called it his four pint principle, and I really, I really thought that was well done. And, um, and it's kind of a funny story if you don't mind me. No, go for it, please. I, you know, I'd, um, my little sister moved up to New York and uh, worked for a magazine up there. And so Lyle and I, my wife and I, were, were visiting her, and we were going to meet her for dinner. And I was like, well, we have time to head over to Brooklyn and, and go to the Brooklyn Brewery. And this was before or after you interned there. So this is before I interned there. Okay. This is before I even like uh, decide I wanted to open a brewery and um so back at that time i don't think they could legally sell pints and so when you walked in you could buy tokens for a tasting or something like that yeah and so we were my wife's like okay we got to head to the to the subway station you know it's time to go meet your sister for dinner and head over to the l yeah and um so i had one more token and so i walked up and i had uh, something called a dunkelweitz and i'm like oh i have no idea what that is <laughs> and uh so i got a pint of it and I was like, come on, we got to go, we got to go. And so I took a sip of it thinking, okay, I'll just try this and say I tried it and put it down. I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Try this. Okay, it's great, but we got to go. <laughs> and so I was like, okay. So she wasn't watching, and I kind of slipped the pine underneath my jacket and walked out the door, and we get down to the subway, and I pull it out. She's like, what are you doing? You can't drink down on the subway? I was like, yeah, but... It was so damn good. I can't just pour this out. You walked out with a full pint from yeah, Brooklyn Brewery. So, First uh, of all, that's amazing. But yeah, <laughs> well, you know, it's so we're down on the you know, the L on I guess off of Bedford Avenue there, and yeah, and uh, and it's deserted. It's like five o'clock on the probably like a Friday night or something like that, and and uh, I look around. There's nobody there. I was like, well, who cares, Lila? It's you know, it's it's New York. Anything goes, whatever. <laughs> and so this guy down the end of the subway sees me drinking. He walks down there and. Uh, He's like, hey, buddy, you look like you're not from around here, but uh, you can't drink down the subway. It's, 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 it's completely illegal. I was like, oh, okay. He goes, you probably ought to just put that down, walk away from it, and just wait for the train. I was like, okay. So I put it down. I walked about 10 steps away, and the train's late. I'm just sitting there looking over that pint like, oh, God damn it. It's, it was so good. So I walk over, pick it up, take another sip. And <laughs> so the guy who had said that to me was a transit cop. <laughs> I guess undercover, or maybe I didn't even notice his badge. So he's like, you have to be the dumbest motherfucker I've ever, <laughs> I even warned you. <laughs> and uh, so he wrote me a ticket and, you know, I'm like, okay, fine. I'm not paying this. I'm from Mississippi. I'm not coming That's back. Amazing. And he goes, yeah, you, you better pay it, buddy. And so we get back and, you know, a couple years later, I don't pay it. A couple years later, I get this, you know, this notice and the, the, they're going to garnish my wages here. I'm in Nashville now. And I've got to pay this ticket. And now it's up to like 200, 250 bucks or something ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was trying to get this internship with, with Garrett and uh, I hadn't gotten any response. And so I photocopied the ticket and I was like, 
look, this is all your damn fault anyway, you know, because your beer is so good. You might as well let me come so I can pay this ticket in person. And so, so uh, I got a response like, okay, cool, come on up. You know, this this the times that work for us. And I got up there, and uh, I guess my first day in the brew house, you know, he introduced me and walks away, and the, and the head brewer's like, so you're the dumbass who got the ticket for drinking on the subway. <laughs> yeah, that was me. That was me. First of all, it's amazing on two points. One, that you just walked out of the brewery with a full pint is under your jacket is, is just something that I don't think happens anymore these days. Or maybe it does. Or, you know. But two, getting a ticket for drinking on the subway. I mean, hell, you can have knife fights, you know, on the subway and not get a ticket. You know, and yeah, it's, it, it was. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, to have the, the cop warn me that I was going to get a ticket, and I did it anyway. There was a sweet spot, probably around 2003, 2004, on the New York City subway where brewers started canning their beers. And so you can actually just like walk on with a can of beer. And nobody, like, and if it looked oh, it different, because look like it didn't look like a Bud Light or a, a, sure. a you know, so people like, oh, it's a soda. Like, yeah, it's a, it's a Subway <laughs> soda. Uh, Josh Bernstein has written about this, and I've done it in practice as well. But yeah, but these days now, it's, you know, you can't drink other half cans on the subway like you, you know, used oh, they to. Recognize. But yeah, it's, yeah, the transit cops are, they're onto us. And God, you got a ticket for drinking <laughs> on a subway platform at Bedford. That's, that's, it's, it's sort of amazing, and I wish we could stop there, but we, we can't because we're only about 10 minutes into this. Um, more with Linus Hall at Yazoo Brewing soon, but first, just a quick word from our sponsor, Cigar City Brewing. Check out all the barrel-aged beers that Cigar City Brewing has to offer, including Excessive and Lustful Kissing, an American whiskey and rye whiskey-aged barley-style ale with cherry and vanilla added. At 14.4% ABV, you'll find aromas of toffee, dark fruit, and strawberry shortcake that meet the unmistakable presence of whiskey and oak on the nose. Learn more at CigarCityBrewing.com. And now back to Yazoo Brewing and Linus Hall, recorded on location in Tennessee. You're bottling your beers and you're canning your beers. And that's not necessarily a funny thing, but it's, it's a calculated thing. Right. You, you mentioned early on the, the bars on Broadway where it's bottle after bottle after bottle being opened and it's the long neck bottles and you do the stubby, more Sierra Nevada heritage bottle right. type. Right. Right. A lot of people have moved to cans. You certainly have as well, but you've also kept your bottles as well. You've kept both going. And I'm curious as to, yeah. to why. Well, we we thought about getting into cans, you know, when, back when it first started. And by the time that... You know, there were some kind of commercially viable ones that were putting out decent, you know, what I call decent uh, quality uh, package product. Um, we'd run out of room. And so, you know, we just said, okay, look, we're going to get into the cans at some point, but it's going to have to be at the next location, the new location. And um, so, yeah, you know, that was, uh, that was calculated that we didn't want to put in a, a really small line that could, you know, have really poor seeming quality or have poor DO, you know, dissolve oxygen. Yeah. And even though, you know, we'd see people putting that stuff out, um, even some breweries, you know, in Nashville that would come by and have their cans checked on our, in our lab were like, they're like, we don't know, you know, why it's so high or, and sometimes it's, it's perfect. And we're like, we don't either. We, you know, we're, we're not, we're not, we have no knowledge of canning. That's a whole learning curve we don't have yet. And, yeah. Um, so yeah, it, uh, we really wanted to have the space to do it right and have the, the, um, the money to put in a good quality line. So yeah, when we moved here. We had the space, and we allocated some some of the money that we had for the expansion. 
um, to a new canning line, a new Italian one. Um, it has the same uh, capacity that our bottling line does, which I thought was important because we had always been behind the curve of what we could put out with our little uh, first, our little forehead mahine that we started with, and then the six head mahine, um, and then we started with a 12 head rotary, and now we have a, a 24 head rotary. But we, we knew that, you know, the, we might actually have the opportunity to have um, everything move to cans if that's what the marketplace demanded. And so I didn't want to put in a canning line and then be, you know, completely under, you know, under, I mean, over, over capacity right away. Sure. Um, so, yeah, so we put in a canning line that can do about 6,000 cans an hour. Um, yeah. It, you know, the DO levels are great. Um, we didn't want to take a step backwards from where we are in our bottles. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, took, a, it took us a while, but uh, I think um, cans will open up some new markets for us here in Middle Tennessee, you know, golf courses, um, place, sure. rooftop bars, um, places that are just cans only because that's what they do. Right. Um, I mean, there's a lot of hunting and fishing and... Yeah, sure. just outdoor life, yeah. And, uh, you know, as we're talking to other, uh, you know, now that we have space to grow again, we are looking at expanding out of Middle Tennessee again. Um, you know, we do sell some beer down in Mississippi where I'm from, um, but we're looking at rolling out in Georgia next year. Well, you know, I guess two days is next year. Now. Yeah. <laughs> um, 12 hours is, yeah. uh, is next year right now, yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of uh, distributors that we talk to, they're like, well, you know, we're trying to bring more cans into our market. And so we're really only interested in bringing in your, your can product, which kind of just blew my mind when we started talking to some of these distributors. Like, you know, so we're hoping that, you know, you're gonna have a lot of your beer available in cans as well. So, you know, here in Middle Tennessee, uh, our bottles are pretty well established and we'll see how that goes. Um, some of the big chains are slow, big chains are slow to make change, you know, mm -hmm. Kroger's and Publix like that. Um, but we're definitely looking at, at cans as a, a growth engine for us. So you've been in this building for better part of half a year now, and you've been canning here since then. Have you seen, and you're also kegging as well. Have you seen a shift since you've added cans to some of your core brands of a marketplace shift of places that have always been getting your bottles that are now like, well, maybe we'll... 20% of cans or 30% or have you seen numbers that have sort of shown you because there's so many breweries that open up that have totally just dismissed bottles that it's sort of tough to get a handle on where the marketplace for craft especially is with with glass bottles right. these days um well you know we moved in here in uh in July okay but for a month and a half everything we were doing was just trying to get our beer back out in the market because we had been down for for six weeks yeah um, and so we kind of let the put the canning line on the back burner. We got it up and running in August, and uh, yeah, you know we've got a, uh, a hazy IPA, our, our hoppery IPA, um, that has shown the biggest uh, growth in cans right now. Surprise! Yeah, surprise, yeah. surprise. Um, is it shelf stable though? It is. You know, we. Why? Um, that, you're doing oh, it wrong. Why? You're doing it wrong. <laughs> Well, you know, that, that that's funny, you know. My but, New Year's resolution is to stop making fun of exploding cans. But, you know, uh, yeah, as long as the brewers follow through with their resolution to, you know. To not. To not make exploding cans, yeah. Uh, you know, that, that's interesting. That was one of our goals is to, before we were going to package that even in bottles was to figure out a way to make it pretty shelf-stable. Sure. Um, and so the cans wasn't that a, a difference yeah. to us. But, um, yeah, that's interesting that uh, I, I think – I'm a big proponent of shelf-stable shelf beer, no matter yeah. what it is. And so, 
you know, I, I, I hate seeing, you know, even I hate taking a risk on a, you know, $10 six pack of beer that I've never tried before. Yeah, no, of course. And I loved it the first time and now it's oxidized or now it's a completely different color or whatever. Um, so yeah, you know, cans, I, I think, uh, will be a big deal for us, but I haven't seen anything yet as far as cannibalizing our bottle sales. Um, those have remained kind of constant and we're just kind of seeing, hopefully, you know, gravy on the top with, with cans right now. But you're not treating bottles as precious, right? I mean, you're, you've run a smart, successful business for long enough where if you start to see the demand for glass diminish, yeah, it'll just increase with cans or, or it was draft. It a big deal yeah. for us to add the cans, but kind of the way I phrased it and people kind of like, oh, okay, you're right. It's like, hey, it was, it was a big deal when we decided to go to get into bottling. You know, we were draft only for uh, two or three years. And, um, and, and yeah, I was like, hey, we didn't get into this to make a package. We got into this to make the beer. And if people want to drink it out of the cans, they want to take a can and pour it into a glass, they want to drink it out of the bottle, they want to drink it on draft, you know, we don't really care. I mean, we just want to have it available where people are making that decision. And so if people are consciously not choosing their beer because of the packaging, then that's something that's got to change. And so, yeah, I, I don't care which way it goes. I'm not married to bottles or anything. You know, I prefer to drink it out of a glass, whether, whether it's you know, off the tap or out of, out of a can. That's interesting because there's a lot of breweries or there's some breweries, I guess I should say, that treat certain things as precious. You know, we will never change this. We will always be this. And I, f I feel like those quotes kind of come back and bite people on the ass later on. It's, you know, <laughs> uh, both Jim Cook and Sam Calajone, who are now colleagues, uh, both famously said that they would never put their beer in cans. And now, you know, Sequench and you know, Boston right. Lager are, are in cans. You've had change as well, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's some places that, that open up, say, you know, this is our home forever. This is where we're always going to be. And the and the building that we're sitting in right now, looking over your 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 brew deck, this is your third Yazoo location now. So change has been constant for you. Yeah, and, and it might be different in other parts of the country, but Nashville is changing so rapidly that I, I feel like you know sitting still is just it's not even an option, even if you wanted to. Um, you have to keep evolving with with your market. You have to keep evolving with the the craft consumer. Um, you're, you're you know sitting still and thinking you'll be fine is is just not an option here. You'll you'll get knocked down and a crane will be put up in your spot. And Pretty much. Yeah. And I mean that's happening at your old spot. Yeah, and, and down um, the Colch, Yeah. The nice thing is you know every move we've had the opportunity to get to a better spot for us. Um, Marathon Village, where we started, was this cool old car factory built in the 1800s. Had so much character, and you know we put so much blood, sweat, and tears into getting that little spot going. But after, I guess you know, in 2008, 2009, we, you know we couldn't hardly move around in there anymore. Yeah. And people, you know, we, we started looking for another location, and we found a bigger spot. And it was an up-and-coming part of town called the Gulch. And, um, and then, you know, about ten, nine, ten years later, we'd run out of space again, and that, that spot was no longer where we wanted to be. And, and probably a lot of that is, you know, our stage in our lives. You know, when I started it, I was in my 30s. You know, a lot of our brewers are about the same age, a little bit younger than me. And now we don't want to deal with, with traffic and bachelorette parties and, and dick straws and, and all the other stuff that goes with, <laughs> you know, downtown Nashville right now. And, you know, yeah. God bless it. It's, it's a driving force of our economy and for the beer sales. But, you know, 
most people who live in Nashville don't go downtown except to take people from out of town down and hopefully drop them off and pick them up later on. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a fun place to go for a big event, but you know, the traffic and the, the tourists and the, the pedal taverns and the, uh, the big green tractors pulling hay bales down Broadway. It's just after a while, you're kind of like, I'm ready to like have a, you know, a normal city again and, and be a part of a neighborhood. And so that's, that's what I love about being up here in Madison is that, you know, sure, it's it's not the same foot traffic that we got being down in the Gulch, but... Well, I mean, there's no foot traffic here. No, I mean, you're, we, you're, you're in an industrial park up here. We are, more but or we're less. surrounded by a lot of neighborhoods, you know. Okay. Um, we're right up against the Cumberland River, so we've got a beautiful view of the river. It is really nice, yeah. Um, and we have you know, plenty of parking, and it's easy for uh, both you know, people that come here and our staff to get to, so... Um, yeah, so I'm not sure if I answered the question. Well, no, I, I guess the way, question but. is, at some point, you, you have to come to the, you have to do a self a self preservation check or a self uh, a, a, a looking inwards and saying, okay, is what I'm doing right now is this making me happy? Is this making my staff happy? Sure, we're making money, but is this the way that we want the business to go? Right. And when you look at sort of the physical limitations that you have or the spatial limitations that you have in, 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 in a building, and you'd sort of butted up against that at your first location and then certainly in the Gulch, you know, as well. And now you're, I mean, you've gotten bigger and grown into bigger spaces each time that, that, that you've moved. Mm-hmm. What have you learned along the way and what have you added? What have you you know, tried to put into, you know, each new location. And let's use where we're sitting right now as sort of the, you know, what are the lessons that you put into practice here? Um, and then I guess the, the, the follow-up would be, um, how does this make you, how does this make you happy? Okay. Um, yeah, I guess each time we've moved, we've tried not to make the same stupid mistakes we made the first time. <laughs> you know, our, our first location the brew house was in the most inaccessible part of the of the brewery, and so to get spent grain in and out meant stop kegging, stop bottling, move this, move that. You had to shut everything down just to well, you shovel just, out. You had to time it just right. Okay. And so, um, and then you know, I mean, for example, our cooler was so small, the door was you couldn't fit a pallet through, so you had to roll each keg in one at a time, and stack it by hand. It was all kinds of stupid things like that. Um, so here we've got, you know, we've got things laid out in a kind of a logical manner. Um, it's easy to get, uh, you know, product, uh, raw materials in. It's easy to get the beer out. Um, we're on a major, uh, you know, part of the interstate system here, so we can get trucks in and out. Um, so that's kind of the, the brewing side of things. Yeah. Uh, we, we kept all the same equipment, you know, added the canning line. So, um, but we uh, we did some things that um, are... are engineers designed the building were like really you want to do that I'm like yeah so we we designed a part of the roof where we can lift it off with a crane um so if we have to if we're hopefully lucky enough to add some more big tanks instead of bringing them through the canning line and through the bottling line yeah we can just drop them in through the roof um we figured that out because that's how we had to get the can the, the, um, the tanks out of the division street location sure. yeah um so you know and then the tap room we you know we kind of designed it to be a big open you know sort of beer hall uh, beer garden kind of feel to it um lots you know several you know roll up uh, garage door glass doors um big patio where we can have uh fire pits where we can you know where we can look down and see the river 
Um, we've got a future space here, um, a big grassy field now, but where we can add our Embrace the Funk uh, uh, warehouse to. Yeah. Um, I can't so. even imagine. So that's that's the project that Brandon Jones uh, does. It's all wild and spontaneous. and Yeah, and, and we've always made the work uh, with our brew house yeah. um, and then trucked it over to a, a, lo- a space that we rent kind of out by the airport, yeah. kind of nondescript building. I've um, been there, and I'm not giving out the address either, but yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it's not it's not a secret anymore. Okay. We, we don't have a you know. We I don't remember have when it first opened up, it was like a secret. Like I went there, and Jones was like, you know, you can't tell anybody where this is. <laughs> it's like, well, what's that he, information? He mainly to doesn't you? want you know salespeople knocking on the door. That's I also think. true. Um, um, but yeah, we have our we have our embrace the funk fest there every uh, you know first uh, Saturday. Oh, of that's May true. Every yeah. Year. Um, but that'll move here as well. Hopefully, you know, we, we had a spot for it and uh, just like everything else in Nashville, we ran out of, the construction was so expensive, we ran out of money pretty quick. Um, but that'll be, you know, phase two, hopefully down the road. All of the things that you just named though, of the, you know, the, being part of a local neighborhood again, uh, where it's not necessarily just tourists all the time, you know, having this beer garden area, the patio, having the canning line, having the space to grow when you walk through these these halls though and you walk through your, your your main floor what's the feeling that rises to the surface um hmm. well there's definitely some satisfaction of having gotten this far uh you know 16 years in the beer industry is you know like 100 years in most businesses <laughs> yeah <laughs> the way things try writing changed. about it yeah yeah um <laughs> so yeah it's just kind of it's kind of interesting to feel like a veteran of, of an industry that I really, you know, admired the, the veterans when I was coming up. Um, I don't pretend to understand what's going on in a lot of the, um, the consumer-driven side of things. You know, uh, I was, we were definitely slow to embrace, you know, uh, hazy IPAs, but, you know, it's one of the styles that we're seeing a lot of growth with, and we feel like we've done a good job with at least one or two that we've come out with. Um, so yeah, just uh, I think just satisfaction that not only we built a physical you know thing, but we you know we've built a brand that, that Nashville's proud of. Um, we've built a business that employs a lot of people, and that um, people when they when they have family come in, they they bring their family to the brewery. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just I you know I can see every little bit of hard work that I know went into every bit of it, and so it's a little bit overwhelming to. Hopefully, I never have to do this again. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know. Would you move out of here? Do you think, or is that I, just know, this? This is the last one for me. I mean, I don't know what the future is going to hold. But um, John, this was it was hard as hell. <laughs> I mean, literally, you know. You've we, added a little bit of grace since the last time I yeah, saw you. It yeah, it was it was physically hard for everybody. I mean, I think I lost about twenty pounds, you know, over the summer. Um, the stress and just you know trying to build up enough inventory and then you know moving all that equipment yeah you know in the middle of the move we're like you know there was a reason why it took us you know 10 years to fill up this space and we're trying to empty it out in, in two weeks but um, yeah I, I you know we're definitely proud of what, what's happened you know there's definitely some tre- you know trepidation about what's the future holds um, yeah. for craft beer um, you know, I'd be lying if I said that I saw the rise of heart seltzers coming and, and, and. Will you get into that space? Well, you know, like you said, never say never, but we don't have any plans right now. Okay. Um, it's not something that I'm very passionate about. You know, I, 
How much does passion play over bottom line, over dollars? Oh, I think, yeah, it has to. I mean, that for it to ring true with the consumer and for it to be something that you, you know, it, it, it takes so much effort to, to do what we're doing that, um, I mean, it's just like a musician just singing, you know, somebody else's song that you're not, if you're not excited about it, the, the audience knows right away. Um, and I think, at least for us, if, we're, if it's not a style or a beer that we're passionate about, even if it's just one or two people on our staff that really love that style, um, we just, you know, it just kind of falls by the wayside, I think, because nobody's championing it. So, yeah, I don't see us getting into hard seltzers or any kind of other kind of line of business. Um, you know, hopefully, you know, I think, I think craft beer is going to remain strong. I don't think it's going to grow as strongly as it has the last, you know, 10, 15 years, but yeah. I, I think that's fine. You know, it, it needs to mature and there needs to be some kind of reckoning with some of the decisions that have been made, but that's probably healthy in the long term for, for, for craft beer. Are there folks who come into your tap room and ask if you have white claw on tap or <laughs> any of those others or not so much? Uh, no, not so much. I mean, we do have people that are, you know, can't drink beer because of you know, health reasons or sure. gluten reasons or something like that. And we've actually added some, a local cider to our menu that we don't make just, really? just for that okay. kind of thing. But, um, no, I mean, you know, we've kind of set it up where we're not a full scale bar and we're not a full scale restaurant. You know, we have food trucks just like we did downtown and, um, hopefully people come here because they want to enjoy you know, some beers that maybe they can't get out in grocery stores or just the whole lineup on one place. But um, no, I mean, again, I, I think there's a lot of things happening in the industry that I don't quite get personally and that we're not going to we're not going to chase. Hopefully that means we'll be fine in the, in the long run, but uh, it's just not something we're going to do. I mean, you've trusted your instincts for long enough, and I think if you're paying attention to your local market, it, 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 it's the old golf swing thing. It's keep your head down, not necessarily looking up and seeing what's sure. happening around you. Sure. One of the things that, as we start to wrap up, and that, that I'm curious about is early on in your business plan, you were thinking about uh, doing house brand beers for... Uh, for local restaurants, so you know, like Hands sure. Ale or you know whoever, um, you know, and then they could sell your beer, but it was under their name, and you know they 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 could make some money, and that that didn't necessarily take off in the early days. No, it was um, it was kind of that strategy of how to get people to try craft beer. Yeah, and I thought that if we could sit down with some you know noted restaurants in Nashville their chefs and design a, a beer that paired up great with their menu or one specific thing on the menu, then they'd say, hey, this is our house, not only our house beer, but we sat down with this great local brewery, Yazoo Brewing. It's made just for us. We, we helped develop the recipe. You know, try it. Um, that they would recognize our, our brand name, our Yazoo brand name, um, and it would be easier to sell our beer. And so it was a great plan, I, I thought. I mean, I had written <laughs> this whole business plan and, and um, and so I had four beers that we were using as our kind of examples of what we could do. Your Kirkland Select? Yeah. yeah. And um, so we had our Pale Ale. We had our, our Dos Peros, which is a Mexican amber. We had a, a stout. And we had a, kind of an American wheat beer. And so I would bring growlers in to talk to these bar managers and the staff. And like, okay, you know, so this is a Pale Ale. This has got you know, hops in it. Hops are bitter, <laughs> you know, floral or citrusy. And so we can, you know, maybe we could take a part of this beer and part of this beer, and they'd be like, no, I like that beer. Can we put, can we put your pale ale on tap? I'm like, well, sure, but, you know, I thought we were talking about designing your beer. Like, 
okay, that's, that's fine, that's fine. Just bring me a keg of the pale ale tomorrow. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so we did about five or six uh, kind of uh, restaurant house brands. And it helped get our name out there. But I was really surprised at the demand, like, right off the bat for, for our beers. And it got to the point where we couldn't keep up with um, both of our beers and the, and the custom brewing. So we let that go. But one of the things that you did take on, though, was Gerst. Yeah. And Gerst is a really fun story. Um, so Gerst was a brewery uh, back in the 1800s here in Nashville, kind of in downtown, right near the South Loop. And um, they were probably the biggest brewery in the Southeast for a while. I think they did like 180,000 barrels one year. So really big. Yeah, um, considering back then. Yeah. yeah. Um, but after Prohibition, they, they struggled, and um, the family ended up uh, you know, closing it in 1954. But they had a restaurant where they kept all of their memorabilia from the brewery, and uh, they kept that going. It's called the Gerst House. Um, it moved locations a couple times, but ended up kind of over by the Titan Stadium on the East Bank. Mm-hmm. And the family that owned it that, at that time wanted to bring the Gerst beer back, and so they went up to Evansville to... Um, I don't remember the brewery up there, Stir- Sterling maybe, or oh, Evansville Brewing or something yeah. like that. Oh, I should know this, but yeah, I, so it's they I'm made blanking. an amber amber ale for them, and then that brewery went out of business, <coughs> and its brands got sold to Pittsburgh Brewing. Right. And so the family that owned Gerst House had Pittsburgh Brewing, but basically, I think that was whatever amber lager they had available at the time, and and the quality was kind of variable, and and so when we moved from Marathon, our original location, to Division Street. Uh, we had the capacity to take it on. I said, hey, it's kind of a shame that, you know, Gerst is made somewhere else. It needs to be made in Nashville again. And so we developed a recipe. Um, it's loosely based off of what I think would have been an ale that they produced, but it's not It's not one of so the recipes. So you recreated. Yeah, we recreated based off of, you know, kind of their old regulars' uh, taste. You know, we, there's still some people from the, from the 40s that remembered it um, and what they wanted to serve at their restaurant. Yeah. And it was fun. I thought it'd just be a house beer for them. Um, we, we actually, the first uh, keg, we had the mayor come down and we tapped it. Um, I had this, this cool old German Stein that I had made for the mayor and we had all the film crews. It was live. Yeah. And um, I was, uh, we tapped a cask and I was pouring the first Stein. I was about to turn around and hand it to the mayor and my little five-year-old daughter was there with me and she kind of tugged on my, uh, my, my pants and said, Hey, Daddy, can I hand it to him? I was like, sure. <laughs> and so on live TV, we had this five-year-old uh, girl you know, reaching up, handing the mayor this stein, and this, just, this, he's, this look on his face like, do I take it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was just so classic. And, um, but you know, he had a great quote. He said, hey, this is a, a great moment for Nashville because we're, we're marrying you know, Nashville's brewing uh, history to its future. I thought that was really cool, and so, but yeah, it's it's taken on a, a life of its own. Really, it's become one of our top selling brands. Yeah, it's in um, your top five, right? Yeah, um, and I thought you know it would only be a Nashville brand because people would recognize it from the history. But we sell a lot of it down in Mississippi. You know, we even sell it in like Charleston. So I think uh, you know it's not just the nostalgic thing. It's you know it's an easy drinking amber ale. It's kind of got a retro feel to it, and uh, you know I'm proud to have brought it back. What do you think? making that beer and looking back into history has taught you or that you hope will resonate with you for your brand going into the future? Well, you know, that 
tastes change. You know, you've got to be able to adapt. Um, but people will respect and, and honor brands that, that have something behind them that, you know, that give back to their community. Um, that's something we've always tried to be big on is being a big part of Nashville. Um, you can't just uh, expect people to, to love your brand if you're not you know, out in the community supporting charities, supporting other events. And so, yeah, I think just you know, that that was such a big part of Nashville's history um, to even you know, think one day that, that we might be in that same kind of you know, pantheon is, is, is pretty cool. So, um, yeah, just you know, things can change pretty rapidly. You know, hopefully there's not just a historical marker here someday saying this is where Yazoo was because <laughs> that's all there is of Gerst right now. Is that that's it? Yeah. But it lives on, so that's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, I hope that happens for you guys as well. Not the marker, but the, 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 the living on thing. Um, yeah. Thanks for sitting down with me. This was no, a lot no, of fun. No, no, it's always a treat, and, John. Uh, yeah, thanks for, we've been drinking your Pilsner the whole time, which anybody who knows me knows that uh, I love Pilsner, but uh, um, you put it on your cans. That uh, This is one of my favorite beers back uh, back two years ago when I worked at another place, and uh, yeah. well, uh, was... I'm, a, I'm a fan. This is, <laughs> this is great, the Daddy-O Pilsner, if you can get your hands on it. You absolutely should, because um, I'm about to have another one. Oh, great. Thanks so much. I yeah. appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks, Jeff. That's Linus Hall of Yazoo Brewing. Visit the brewery next time you're in Music City, and if their dark Czech lager is on tap, get yourself several mugfuls. My thanks to Linus for making the time and for the hospitality. We'll have a few other shows from Southern Brewers in the coming weeks, along with some other familiar names and some interesting topics, so make sure you subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode. You can always reach me on email at John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at BeerEdge.com, or on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Please take a minute or so to just leave us a review on your podcast platform, because it really helps other people find the show. Nate Schweber does our music, Jeff Quinn designed the logo, Andy Crouch is an attorney, and Ryan Newhouse is available to talk if you'd like to advertise. Find him at ryan at beeredge.com. And speaking of that, this episode was brought to you by Cigar City Brewing. Find yourself a bottle of vulgar expressions and double meanings and indulge on this full and balanced porter and imperial stout blend with flavors of baker's chocolate, chocolate-covered cherries, and blackstrap molasses that melds seamlessly with dark fruit and alcohol spiciness imparted by extensive barrel aging. Or for something completely different, check out Sun Over the Yardarm, the 6.9% ABV breakfast martini-inspired ale that offers lime zest, orange peel, and a light cracker-like flavor to complement the beer's acidity and vanilla quality. Check these beers out and more at CigarCityBrewing.com. And Drink Beer, Think Beer is produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. A subscription to Beer Edge provides readers with smart and critical insights into the business and culture of beer. We talk directly to the players, making an impact and report stories our audience has not heard before. The team at Beer Edge offers up a fresh and unfiltered look at the world of beer. Subscribe at BeerEdge.com. And that's it. That's the show for this week. I appreciate everybody who's been tuning in, listening, and offering your feedback. New episodes every Wednesday. And that's when I'll be back next to Drink Beer and Think Beer. Hope you'll join us. Cheers.